When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And before we get started, I do want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for their Podcaster Essentials Kit, the Lira Mic and amazing headphones are fantastic and the best way to get into podcasting if you've ever thought about doing your own. Chris Ollie of 6x7 was kind enough to take a break from writing to join us on the podcast. We jump right into things with how difficult it is for artists to remain true to themselves. Chris also discusses how he transformed from a guitar shredder to a Neil Young disciple. His band 6x7 was the band that should have broken here in the U.S., but didn't. Chris posits that it could be the band's penchant for terrible timing. He also schools me on Cher's Do You Believe, discusses his bizarre working relationship with Julian Cope, and how long it takes him to get sacked from any given job. He also breaks down why people believe he's a prolific songwriter. I'd recommend following his social media, but he doesn't have any. Check the band out at Bandcamp. There's a lot there. And check us out on the socials at Performance ANX. You can treat us to coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is found at performanceanx.threadless.com. And let's not waste any time. We can get right into it with Chris Ollie of 6x7 on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. This is Chris from 6x7, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. All right, ready? This is Chris from 6x7. You're listening to Performance Anxiety. Go for it. This is Chris from 6x7. Check out my band at Bandcamp 6x7. And you're listening to Performance Anxiety. We've got Facebook and all that, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to direct another human being towards that shit. Thank you man, so much for, for coming on. This is really, really going to be a lot of fun for me. Hopefully it's a little fun for you too. But <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> this is really cool. This is, these are some of my favorite episodes because as I was mentioning to you, uh, you know, unfortunately I wasn't familiar with your work until I had uh, Peter Holmstrom from the Dandy Warhols on the podcast. And he said, you've got to get Chris Ollie on. Okay, no problem. So I know I'd reached out to you a, a, you know, a while back, and there was just, the timing wasn't quite right. And 
when we got something concrete set, I'm like, all right, now I, I got to start researching. And holy God, I, I'm in love with 6x7. I absolutely love the music. It's, I can't even describe it. I mean, it's, it's, if I was going to describe it in, in uh, popular Amer- bands, popular in America at some point, it would be kind of like if you took the real noisy part of Smashing Pumpkins and the more popular parts of maybe the ver- early Verve and smash them together. That's how I would describe 6x7 to, to one of my friends. Right. And I'm so ticked off that you guys didn't really make any inroads in the U.S. I don't know how it was in the U.K., but in the U.S., it didn't happen. And I'm just I'm kind of pissed off about it because you guys should have been enormous. Well, if the, the thing about... Six by seven is if you if you go onto YouTube and look at any of our stuff and then go and look under the comments underneath, it's just people saying what you've just said. Why didn't this band get any bigger? And in fact, when our old record label Beggars Banquet made a film about us, they wanted to make this film. They wanted to actually make a film about me, and um, they wanted to make the film about the fact that I'd carried on and and just sort of carried on regardless. And um, they found that actually, they said that nobody that had been dropped by the label had ever really done that. And um, some some people had been, like Biffy Clyro and um, Kaiser Chiefs had been dropped by the label and then gone on to do bigger things, you know. But no one had been dropped by the label, then not gone on to get another record deal and just carried on anyway. Yeah. And they wanted to make a film about, about that. And, and then I said, well, can we look into this, this phenomenon, which this band seems to have, which is that everybody, nobody hears the band, but when people do, the first thing they say is why the fuck aren't this band really big? I mean, hang on a minute. There's so many bands out there that are just nowhere near as good as this band, and they're much, much bigger for some reason, yeah. and I just don't get it. And you see, can you can you imagine how many times I've heard that in my life? You know, it's just like I, I find it quite amazing, but at the same time, it's probably down to me and my inability to just bullshit my way to the top because let's face it if you want to be really successful just create a really cuntish persona and climb right in yeah and i've never wanted to do that and and i realized early on that i pushed people around me and i dragged people kicking and screaming because i wanted to be famous and then when i got to the point where i saw what it was like I went, oh fuck this! Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to making music, and I just wanted, I don't want an A and R man sitting on the sofa in the studio telling me to turn the vocals up. It's I don't hear oh, a single. I don't, hey, I don't hear a single here. Yeah, turn the vocals up, turn the vocals up, turn the vocals up. I don't mind a producer saying that, or someone I respect, or yeah. another musician, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, and and I think at the moment as well, I think that. 
things are more punk rock than they've ever been. And really, someone like me can actually make a living out of a very small following. And um, what, what, what would be deemed a very small following. Right. I mean, and if you're crew, if you're shrewd and clever enough, you can, you can probably, you know, find a way. Every, every artist, his first duty is to himself, you know, and to find a yeah. way. And if you don't find a way to make money or get patronage, then you can't really be an artist because you, then you've got to go and work at your local Walmart or something. So, right. and then once you do that, you, you start to fall into the trappings of life, which is, you know, like Bill Hicks said, drink coffee all week to keep you going and drink alcohol all, all weekend to make you forget where you've been all week. Yeah. And, you know, how are you supposed to do a painting or, or, or write a song in that kind of condition, you know? So yeah. it's very, very important to find a way. And that's what I've done. It's all, it's been about finding a way. So what happens is I'm still making this music It's still of a certain standard, but it only kind of, because I won't go into that world, it will never go much beyond because I'm not invited at, I'm not invited into it. Right. Wow. Well, but I'm Pete because one day I'll die and <laughs> 20, 30, 40 years later, your son and or your grandson who's doing your podcast, which is now big. <laughs> my God, look at the body of work this guy behind, <laughs> you know? Well, and, just... and there it is. And it'll always be there. It'll be sitting there waiting for someone in 200 years' time to write a bloody book about me. Well, see, that's what's going to happen with this podcast. See, uh, I'm... I'm uh, I've... Recorded over 200 episodes, and uh, I think I have like eight people that listen. And uh, <laughs> so my grandkids will find all my thousand episodes that I've recorded on some kind of external hard drive and then be like, hey, he talked to this. all these people. What the hell? So Exactly. I mean, that's what it's about. And uh, those eight people will <laughs> listen to this and they'll go over to the six by seven website and four of them will become fans. Exactly. We'll buy stuff and you know, the word is spreading. Yeah. And we're kicking against the pricks and we're doing our own thing here. So, uh, by the time I have great, great, great grandkids, we should be financially set. You'll be financially set by then. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have paid off my debts. <laughs> uh, I still won't. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but before before we get too deep into this, I want to find out a little bit about how you got into it in the first place. So you were a musician and a photographer, which I love because I'm a photographer. I went to college for it as well and, and did it professionally. Did yeah. Did it professionally for about, 12, 15 years, something like that. Wow, okay. I'd love to see it. Yo, awesome. Well, I, I appreciate that. How did, so when you were growing up, when did music really become important to you? It, it was, was it music or was it photography first? Music. Um, around about the age of five, uh, there was three songs that had a really big impact on me. And I can, they're still like with me now. Um okay. And um, one of them was Je T'aime. 
Oh. The, the other one was, um, which I found fascinating. The other one was, look what they've done to my song, Ma, by Melanie. Yeah. I always used to think, even, you know, before I could even think about anything, I, I remember listening to that song and thinking, why is she singing, look what they've done to my song, mum? You know? Yeah. So I guess that kind of sowed the seeds for lyrics. And then the other song that really got me at the time was the theme tune to the good, the bad and the ugly. Oh, wow. You know, and that really kind of scared me and made me feel like, uh, it, it, it had this kind of ability to get under my skin and make me think of, uh, vivid pictures, you know? Yeah. So the other thing was, you know, the Beatles and stuff like that. And, um, and then when I was at school, um, when it came to music lessons on my report card, it always used to say, Chris has got a real ear for music. Chris is, there's something odd about him when it comes to music. And, no. and of course, my dad would go to, to the school and, and uh, he'd come home and be furious with me that I wasn't very good at maths and I wasn't very good at physics and chemistry and and then he'd go what's all this bloody you're always they're always saying you're good at music what use is that to anyone oh wow so it wasn't like um something that was um you know encouraged yeah they didn't but i kind of and then and then what happened was um i started to play the guitar around about the age of 15 because of a friend, he played guitar. I started actually playing the drums earlier because there was a drum kit at school. And then I got into the guitar. And then I I kind of wanted to be the best guitar player in the world. And I and I listened to... Uh, at 15, I, I, was, I was 15 in 1980. Okay. So the first band I ever saw live was Iron Maiden. Oh, man. On their first tour, you know. Wow. And um, I, around that time, there was this thing going on called the British metal scene. The British, it was, there was this thing called British metal. Yeah, that, like, the new wave of British heavy metal kind of. The new wave of British heavy metal, that's what it was called. Yeah. And um, I mean, I wasn't aware of it. I was just kind of like, going to see bands like Saxon and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. And, um, you know, these bands, they, they brought out all these classic albums around that time. And I was going to see them. I was living in Germany and I was going to see them twice a year. You know, they were coming to Germany twice a year wow. whilst knocking out these albums. They were just touring and, and recording. So I kind of wanted to be the best guitarist who could play in a band like that. And I practiced and practiced. And um, anyway, then we moved to a different place in Germany and, and there was this place there. It was called the cook, the Kneipp on Kino, which was, it was a cinema and it was a, it was a pub at the same time. And the guy that worked in there, the projectionist, he was, um, he fancied my sister, so he used to let me in for free. <laughs> we we used to sit up in the projection room 
Oh, wow. And um, they used to show really, it was like, um, it wasn't like a conventional cinema. It was a cinema and it had a bar at the back and it had a pool table at the front, okay. but it was a cinema. And they used to show really, that, like they never showed anything that was kind of like doing the rounds at the time. Okay. But what they did show was films like Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii. Oh, wow. Um, Kiss in the Attack of the... I can't remember what it was called. The Phantoms or something. Or, or um, I, just like really weird, obscure films, you know. Okay. And, um, a lot, you know, like a lot of the old stuff, you know, with Goblin and bands like that doing the music. Anyway, but one day they showed Russ Never Sleeps by Neil Young. And I remember saying to him, you know, what's what's this Neil Young? And he said, oh, have you not heard of Neil Young? And I said, no. And he said, well, you should listen to this. You, you might like it. And um, I remember I had to be home by like half nine or 10 o'clock and, and the film came on and, this guy came out and he played Sugar Mountain on this 12 string. Yeah. And I just thought, that's what I want to do. And I wow. I watched the whole film and I, I remember going home and being told off for being busting my curfew. And, and, and I remember thinking, it was like a light came on. It was like, <clears throat> from that day onwards, I just thought, why am I wasting my time trying to make this sort of music? Like... Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Black Sabbath when really I could be a shaman and I could be writing songs and I could be channeling whatever it is. I don't have to be able to play like Eddie Van Halen. I don't have to. I, it was almost like I, I was struggling along trying to be something that I thought I wanted to be. And when I saw Rust Never Sleeps, I realized that I really just wanted to sing and write songs. And then from that day onwards, that's what I started to do. Wow. That and I've is... never stopped. No, I've noticed that your discography is, is quite, quite large. Yeah. But those early days, were you playing in, in bands at the time or were you just kind of woodshedding on your own? Yeah, we, we we had a little band at school with my friends. We used to play and perform at the end of um, term for all the kids. We used to do cover versions like Ziggy Stardust and um, Cortez the Killer I managed to get oh. in there. Oh, that's uh, awesome. That was brilliant. I was like, I want to do Cortez the Killer. I want to sing it. And I stood there singing Cortez the Killer and playing it on the guitar for like fucking 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> front of all these school kids that were just thinking, what on earth is this? This is around the time when everybody was listening to the Human League and and um, oh. ABC and bands like that. <laughs> oh, Adam the Ants, oh, 1983. So, and then I had another band uh, with my German friends, with, with the guy who, who taught me to play guitar and um, or, or who introduced me to it. And um, we played Eric Clapton and Eagles kind of stuff. Oh, wow. And um, we were, that's when I started to introduce my own songs. And we used to do some of my own stuff as well. 
which the boys in the band thought was really good and we should do. And they liked the sound of my voice and encouraged me to sort of do that. And, oh, but the guitarist in the band, he just used to um, play guitar solos all the time. <laughs> all the way through the song, he'd just play guitar solo. It was worse than Bebop Deluxe. And then, um, you know, that when I learned an awful lot from that because I realised that when you're in a band, you have to let go of your ego and work as a team yeah. for it to work. And um, all the bands that I'd been in had always failed because of people wanting to put in too many drum fills, people wanting to put in too many guitar solos. And, you know, the 80s was a time of um, being flash, really. Um, oh, for sure. You know, you wanted Mark King on bass in your band, you know, not not Jack Bruce kind of thing. And I was like, no, I want Jack Bruce, not Mark King. Yeah. Then it wasn't until kind of like the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, that people started to realise that, no, it's better to have Jack Bruce and not Mark King. Yeah. And then all these bands like the Stone Roses and uh, the Pixies were the ones for me, really. I heard the Pixies and I just thought, ah, oh, you can reinvent the Sex Pistols. You can reinvent... You can combine Neil Young and the Sex Pistols and Wire or whatever oh, and, yeah. and call it the Pixies and like weird singing in Spanish and you know <laughs> kind of strangulated surf music this is brilliant and then I went to university to study photography and the only reason I really did that was to try and find like-minded people to, to make music with. And that's the first thing I did. And I met the guitar player and, you know, we both liked bands like, um, the Pixies, but we both also liked kind of the Eagles and we liked Captain Beefheart. I mean, there was all this oh, wow, stuff, yeah. you know, and then he, he brought the drummer in and the drummer was really into, Spaceman 3 and he used to I remember going to a party and he was DJing and he was playing like any way anyhow anywhere and I was like fucking hell there's a whole this is brilliant and he was combining it with Spaceman 3 and Spiritualized and uh, My Bloody Valentine and wow and he, he was kind of making people aware that the old stuff and the new stuff, how it was all just, you just didn't know if you were listening to something modern or something from the 60s. And he introduced all that. And I remember him coming to me and saying, fucking hell, Chris, listen to this. It's amazing. And it was fucking Cinnamon Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, bloody hell. <laughs> you know what, Chris? I was listening to that years ago and I was late on it then. Yeah. So it it was a brilliant time. And, and then when we got the band together, I wrote on the wall, no drum fills, no guitar solos, because okay. I'd learned that from my, you know, previous years. And right. so, and then, you know, the drummer was, you know, and I said to him, why are you drumming like that? when you love Mo Tucker and you love Spaceman three, you know, don't just go like that. Yeah. But they go, well, am I allowed to? And I go, of course you fucking are. So, you know, and the guitar player was like, well, I'll, then I'll play like 
fucking Captain Beefheart over the top. It's like, well, there you go. And, and at the time, the only band, you know, we all came from different backgrounds. Like, I was more into sort of the Neil Young singer-songwriter kind of um, vibe. And then yeah. the drummer was like the Velvet Underground Spaceman 3 spiritualised a guitarist, Captain Beefheart, and then it was kind of the only band that we all kind of agreed on at the time that we all really thought we could be was Mercury Rev. Oh, wow. So those first three Mercury Rev albums happened while we were developing as a band. It took us like five years to develop. Oh, okay, wow. So we started in 1992 and we got signed in... 97 so that's a you know it was a good five years of playing gigs um developing you know it but yeah developing in the rehearsal room trying i finished college the other two the guitarist was in the year below me the drummer was in the year below me he was on the fine arts course and then i had to wait a year for them to finish and so we we just kind of carried on and we knew we had something and we knew that it was only a matter of time before the world got round to our way of thinking right and of course during this whole time Britpop was going on yeah so you know when we started to get good and we we thought we we thought we sounded a bit like Mercury Rev and Dinosaur Jr. and Spaceman 3 and Stereolab, you know. And yeah. um, and then uh, we couldn't really... At that time, those bands were kind of more from a kind of... The, the scene that happened before Britpop, you know, the whole sort of shoegazy kind of... Yeah. Thing, bloody Valentine. Moose. So we were kind of still in that world and none of us liked Britpop we all thought it was far too looking back you know it was all about sort of regurgitating the Beatles regurgitating the Kinks and um, this band Manson they did this song called Tax Tax Loss and it was obviously Tax Man by the Beatles we felt that Oasis were just like a joke we didn't understand it and um you know, so we were going around and playing this music at the time and no one wanted to know. Like, I'm talking about like, record labels and stuff. And, and then this, this guy, this manager came along and he he wanted to manage us, make money out of us. And he had connections. And we did a gig in Leicester and he got about 30 record labels to come up and see us. And they all left before we finished the first song because it was like 17 minutes long. <laughs> It was like a, a a Velvet Underground song, and we started off with it, and it was fucking brilliant. If they'd have stayed to the end, they'd have loved it. But, oh, that's amazing! Uh, you know, it, and then, and then what happened was weird because Britpop started to fizzle out, and the you know bands like Spiritualized were suddenly coming through, and Mercury yeah. Rev suddenly reappeared out of nowhere with Desert songs. And that got made album of the year, and then, and then all of a sudden it was like all the A and R people were suddenly looking for. Uh, we oh that was it. I remember we would we were going down to London on the train to meet up to go to Beggar's Banquet, 
okay. the record label we were going to sign to to meet everyone for the first time. And I remember our manager sat there and he said, do you realize that Radiohead are about to release a single which is seven and a half minutes long? And we were like, well, that's it then, isn't it? Britpop is dead. Yep. And post-rock is here. Yeah. And um, it was Paranoid Android by Radiohead. And we were kind of like, ah, we belong. We fit now. Yeah, exactly. So we suddenly became something. And we started to, we signed this deal. We recorded and uh, and um and then we started touring with all these bands like the Dandy Warhols and Placebo and Ash and uh, the Manic Street Preachers and um it was a bit like i don't know it just kind of it never really happened for us because i think what happened then during that time was it all kind of went wrong with Wonderwall i think and then what happened was that you know Verve who were this kind of um, I mean, these are all bands that we used to go and see in the early days. And right. and then Verve suddenly pulled the acoustic guitar out and it was all about the drugs don't work. And... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. You know, everything started to become all these, old, these bands that we'd seen with 30 people in the audience doing these 15-minute songs that were, were just brilliant and all the rest of it, we're all suddenly, like, writing Wonder Walls. Yeah. And, um, you know... Bittersweet Symphonies. As Bill Hicks would say, they were sucking Satan's cock. Yep. Uh, yeah, so... And we were horrified by this. and um, And then it got worse because... Our publishers, there was this girl called Caroline Ellery and she, she and Ian Ramage, and they signed us the publishing and they we went for a meal with them and they said, Oh, we've just signed this band, they haven't got a record deal yet. And I was like, Oh yeah, and what are they called? And they went, they're called Coldplay. Oh. And I said, Oh, okay. And they used to give our records to Coldplay. And then um she always used to say, Oh, they love your stuff, you know. Was like, and then we found that Coldplay started releasing songs that sounded very similar to ours, but were very commercial and diluted. And there was actually a big row at the time on the forums about a song that we had called So Close. fix you and people were saying that the you know but that basically they'd ripped us off wow and, and um and then i spoke to caroline who was giving them our rec our records and she was like oh yeah they listen to you all the time and they they you know they, they'll probably have ripped it off it's you know it's an that's probably what they've done and wow. that's what bands do isn't it we were ripping mercury rev off they you know that's what you do 
And it's always good to find an obscure band to rip off. Yeah. Because then play with ripping them off. <laughs> anyway, so um, <laughs> so it was a kind of like there was this sea change. So while we were doing the second album, which was a ferocious album yes. in many ways, but it was also quite a plaintive record. It was quite a the lyrics on it were very much like of a band that was quite unhappy with the times. And yeah, I, I definitely get that listening to it. Everybody wanted Coldplay, and all of a sudden, all the all the journalists and um, all the people that had championed us at the NME and the Melody Maker and all the rest of it got sacked because they hated Coldplay, and they were going, this is bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, the people in charge were like, well, it, this is what's going to happen. If you think it's bullshit, then fuck off. Right. So we they then got people in that liked Coldplay to write about them. And then it got worse. It went on to bands like Keen. And, oh. you know, it was like, it went from the acoustic guitar to the fucking piano. I forgot and about Tra them. You know, there was this band called Travis who who were a sort of, you know, a rocking indie band. Yep. They completely changed and started singing about... They softened their sound a lot. Yeah, right, like... like yeah, full on with the scaly pecker in the mouth, and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> you know, but all these people are living on fucking in massive houses in LA with pond with pools, and uh, yeah. you know, where are we? But you know, these are the decisions you have to make, and um, I think what happened was we were just we were slightly we were ahead of our time when we were doing our stuff, and then what happened was. We, we kind of, the times overtook us while we were doing it. And I, okay. somebody once said life is all about timing. And six by sevens timing was absolutely lousy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, unfortunately. But, but the, the great thing about the band is that there are so many bands out there who think that the band was brilliant. And it's almost like a band's band, but yeah. it, so like, yeah, like Pete, you know, you've got, I mean, Pete, I, last time I saw him in Birmingham when they were playing, he said to me, every person, I, he said, I, it's my mission in life to tell everybody about six by seven. And he said, and do you know what the amazing thing is? Every person that I tell about six by seven comes back to me and says, fucking hell, thanks for telling me about that band. Fucking hell. It's like, I never even knew. I did it. Yeah. Well, that's just it, isn't it? I, I reached out to, to him uh, earlier in the week, and I said, oh, I'm going to have Chris on the, the recording with Chris on the podcast uh, this weekend. I said, oh, he's one of my favorite humans. Love that guy. So wow. I said, so I said, oh, all right. Uh, so I, I, that's where we left it. And then I started listening to the catalog, and it was either yesterday or the day before. I, I emailed him back. I said, Thank you for introducing me to Chris. I'm, I have, I'm so pissed off that these guys didn't break in the U.S. I, I'm, how did they not make any inroads? And he just said, I know, I know. So, you know. You, yeah, I mean, have you seen the film? Is it that, um, it's like a 15-minute, I saw like a 15-minute documentary on YouTube. Watched, is it called The Dream is Sweeter Than the Taste? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I was. I did that at my job instead of working. So. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> so. Yeah, you see, 
That that kind of describes the the girl in it, Leslie, who commissioned the film. She she was working for Beggar's Banquet on Broadway in in New York. They have an office on Broadway, and and she said everybody there was just like waiting for Six by Seven to explode in America. She just thought it would be a given thing that this band would do well, and. We signed a massive deal with Interscope, actually. They licensed us to Interscope. Oh, really? Yeah. And what happened was um, the um, the guy who signed us at Interscope, he was called Steve Rabowski. And Steve had signed loads of really famous bands. He used to um, work with Talking Heads and stuff like that. Oh, really wow. great guy. Lovely guy. And he signed us and we went over and met all the team and everything like that and did some showcase gigs that went really well and everybody was really excited. And um, I remember being in this um, bowling alley where there was this party and there was literally about 50 radio guys in there and they were all lining up to speak to me and each one of them was shaking my hand saying, you know, we've got you on rotation here in Boise, Idaho and we've got you on rotation. (laughs) You know, and and the record label were like, this is so exciting and um, we got to number one in the college chart or something like that and, and, um, and then Steve phoned me up and he said, I've been sacked and... Seagram Whiskey bought, I think, Universal. Oh, wow. There was a big merger. Okay. And some accountant just went, right, all of that, all of that, and all of that, get rid of it, and all of that, and all of that, get rid of it. Wow. And we went in the bin. Oh, my God. And the A&R man phoned me up, and he phoned me up at home, and he said, I'm really sorry about this, but... I've got. I've been given an hour to put all my stuff into a box and leave, and you've been dropped, and so has everybody that I've signed, and the whole thing's finished, and that's the end of it. And it's like it's because C. Graham Whiskey have bought. I mean, we were actually in L.A. at the time, and we were supposed to be um, celebrating coming to America and everything like that. Yeah. And literally everybody that was chaperoning us and taking us around to do interviews and all the rest of it couldn't give a shit. They were just like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. Wow. They were all just out to our faces. And we were like, fucking hell, we've come all the way from England to <laughs> America and, and you're sitting there going, I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. And they were literally quaking in their boots and, and most of them got sacked. Oh, my God. That's unbelievable. Yeah, so that's what happened in America. It was just one of those things. It was just a mer- a, a, a huge company merger. See, and you know these things, they're kept under wraps. People find out about it a few hours earlier, and then all of a sudden it happens, and it, it was massive. It was on the news and everything. And it was like, oh, my God. And then, yeah, what happens is there's a big merger, and someone just goes and has a clear out. See, this is what I tell people all the time. Metrics fuck everything. Yeah. I I hate metrics. I hate I hate quantifying your job by metrics. I hate somebody looking at your performance by numbers. It's just numbers don't tell the whole story and it it ruins everything. Especially education. Yeah. 
education in the arts. I mean, because there's no there, there's no way to quantify artwork in in numbers. Yeah, but all these fuckers that that instigate all this shit, they all listen to music and collect art. Yeah, well, they probably listen to Coldplay. Yeah, they uh. wanted us to listen to Coldplay. It was like Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. You know, it was. It was. I was talking to Pete about it, and he said, "Look, we always looked over to England as a band, and all the American bands always looked over to England for what was coming, yeah, for innovation. And when we saw Oasis, we all just went, oh, no. That's <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of the end. Yeah. And it was like, you know, when I heard The Verve and what they became and coming out of commercial radio, yeah. it was like alternative, alternative music, music from the underground. The corporations have grabbed it, pulled it up, diluted it, throwing them a few knighthoods and a few lordships and and, a, and money. Yeah. Here's your money. You've joined the club. Here's your money. Oh, okay. Oh, fuck me. I'm a millionaire. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll stop kicking against the pricks now because I've become the prick. Exactly. And I was watching that documentary that you had mentioned, and you have a quote there that I thought was fantastic. It described the music that you guys were making with 6x7, and you said you were trying to make music that filled in the gaps of your record collection. Yeah. I love that quote. I think that's what most artists worth their, their weight in trying to do something new is trying to do. Well, that was always the idea, to do something that hadn't been done before, and I think because of the disparate... The creative element of the band was me, the drummer, me, me and the drummer, really, and to a lesser extent, the guitar player. And um, I think um, there was a lot of opinions. There was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. Okay. There was a lot of n knowing when something went in a certain direction, I don't want to do that. So, oh, okay. So it was kind of like a band by default. It was a band that didn't have a plan to know exactly what it wanted to do. It just knew what it didn't want to do. Um, okay. And if it started to sound too much like the Sex Pistols, then we stopped it. If it started to sound too much like stereo lab then we stopped it and we tried to keep it on an even keel just keep it alive by doing that and and then you ended up with the result that you got and i think that's kind of how the band made it sound really i love the sound it's it's amazing i was just listening to uh the well, I listened to uh, as many of the albums as I could, but just let's say just off that first album, you know, European Me, Brilliantly Cute, but Spy Song, the last yeah. five minutes of that, I could just loop that for hours and just listen to that.
did. <laughs> you know, we we wrote that song in the rehearsal room. Okay. And then we got to the end and we we did that thing. Mm-hmm. Baby, I love you. Bring. And the drummer started playing it. And then we just carried on playing it because, and then someone said, you know, I would like to just play that forever. And we said, well, let's just do it then. Let's just play it for as long as we possibly can. And we actually played it for as long as we could before the vinyl would not allow us to put any more on. Oh, wow. We did exactly that, what you're thinking. So that's what you do. And, you know, it's like if you were in the band and you'd have said that, that's what we'd have done. Oh, God. That's amazing. Well, I listen to that bit forever. Well, let's play it forever then. <laughs> I love now, the idea behind the band. Oh, maybe that's why you're connecting with me so strongly. Uh, yeah, I'm more concerned about the people we didn't connect yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We're slowly connecting with everybody, very slowly. But I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure if people, more people heard it, I'm sure it would do much, much better. But, you well, know. I'm quite happy. The the amazing thing to me is that I, like I said, I listened to as much as I possibly could, but you didn't fall into that trap that the Verve and somebody and and Travis fell into of softening the sound as you go. I mean, the stuff that's released now is just as potent as the first album, you know, and or or the the second. I mean, you know, it's it's just there's stuff in there that's just as powerful just as noisy but you've kind of expanded the palette a lot too at that time the early the early first couple of albums i noticed that a lot of bands have a tough time getting their live sound onto an album you know the the live and and, and the studio songs same song sound a lot different how was six by seven live compared to the studios? Was it an accurate representation of the band live? The the first album failed at achieving what the band was like live. Okay. The band live was a lot more edgy than the album. The album was we none of us liked the album and in the end we couldn't change it. It had to oh, be wow. released and, and um it was a case of it just sounded too soft. Oh wow! So when we did the second album. We were a bit more aware of of that, and we recorded it in a different way. Um, and we had a producer called John Lecky come down. Oh yeah! And I had a lot of a lot, a lot of um, conversations with John on the telephone. I don't know if you know who John Lecky is. Yes. I, I, Roses and the Radiohead, the Benz and yeah. Muse, all this sort of stuff. He also did Bebop Deluxe and XTC, and he worked with all the Beatles. He worked at Abbey Road. And anyway, so he came to see us, and um, it was actually that guy, Steve Rabowski, who I told you about. And he phoned John Lecky up and he said, Get down and see this band. And, and then John came up to me afterwards and he said, I've listened to your first album, but it doesn't reflect what you do. And I said, well, would you like to come into the studio and, <laughs> and fix it? And he went, yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> so he came up on the second album, and um, he uh, and, and I spoke to him a lot on the phone about it, and I said, how are we going to do this? 
and and in the end we hatched a plan and and we were all quite excited about it because um no one had done it since the ramones i think and john said to me he said look in the end what you might as well do is like just bypass all the multi-tracks and just go straight down to stereo and just record it so that you can't fix anything. So when you're playing, because we realized that if when a musician's playing, if he knows in the back of his mind, he can go back and fix something. If he makes a mistake, he plays it differently to how he plays it when he knows it's going out live on the radio. Interesting. Oh, I didn't think of that. Right. So John said, well, let's recreate that feeling by recording straight to stereo. So if the bass player gets it wrong, we just got to do it again, the whole thing. Wow. Or, and if we can't get it right, we change it at the source level. We change the song or we then chop the tape into different takes a bit like the Beatles. So he said, well, let's do it like that. And I thought, wow, that's a brilliant idea. And if, if anybody's going to get the band sounding good, it's going to be him, you know? Oh, for sure. You know, getting up. Cause that's what he's the master at. He, he's actually, when we were working with him in the studio, I remember going upstairs. He kind of went, is this your amp? I said, yeah. And he said, is this the guitar you're going to be playing? Yeah. And these are your pedals. All right, play it. And then he'd literally put his head in my amp and turn all the dials and everything. <laughs> and, it, and then I'd go, fucking hell, that sounds loads better than it normally sounds. And he'd go, well, that's how it should sound. And then he'd put, he'd put a microphone in front of it and, and then he'd fuck it. And I'd stand there playing it for half an hour. And then he'd go, come up and have a listen. You go up and have a listen, and you'd go, fuck me, that sounds exactly like my guitar. <laughs> no, I think that's actually quite a weird thing. But what I'd found was that when I'd been in the studio before and someone had recorded my guitar, it wasn't, it didn't sound like my guitar. It sounded like an approximation of my guitar. Okay. But when the band came back at us through the speakers after what we'd recorded, it sounded like an approximation of the band rather than exactly like the band. So what John Leckie does is he he does it so that what comes back out of the speakers is what basically is going into the microphones or coming out of the speakers at right. the other at the other side. And um, anyway, so I told the manager and and he told the record label to order um, rather than um, the usual two inch multi-track we when you go in to do an album the record label normally this is before pro tools obviously then the the record label would buy approximately 15 rolls of two inch tape okay and the ta- the speed at which the tape runs you could probably get something like two to three songs onto a roll of tape so you get 15 of them and that probably sort you out for the album you know okay b-sides and all the rest of it and we and, and i managed to find them so don't buy any and they were like what and they said no just buy 50 rolls of the half inch tape which only holds two tracks left and right stereo and they were like what's going on <laughs> and they and they said well they're gonna do it like this like the ramones did it with with um phil specter that's how they did it oh okay well no 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 we're just gonna put it down onto 
onto two track like it the old days you know and then yeah. he got his gun out and threatened them if they didn't get it right <laughs> <laughs> anyway so um they the record label went no no well they stopped us from doing it oh my god yeah can you believe that they actually stopped us from doing it oh my gosh they said there they said we can't have a producer in the studio of the caliber of john lecky and then not be able to take the songs and mix them with someone else and i just thought do you realize how ridiculous that sounds that sounds ridiculous to me and i don't i don't have any experience in that so we didn't do it and uh. but what we did do was we tried to do it with what we should have done if is we should have gone about it in a different manner with our manager our manager we you see we thought well when we signed to beggar's banquet they said sign to us because you'll be allowed to to do anything you want we're an independent a large independent and you can be creative right so as soon as we tried that they said no yeah <laughs> you know i understand why they said it because they were thinking what happens if six by seven record a real gem and we can't fucking mix it so it works better on fm radio okay yeah so that Obviously, what they were thinking, you know, what happens if we want to be able to? just on and our point was no we you know if we record a gem or then that's the way it stays yeah and it like you know when sure recorded that song do you believe mm-hmm. uh, if you believe in life after love you know where yeah. she sings through the auto-tune yeah and it goes over the place almost sounds like a vocoder yeah she actually did that and they and the the engineer, and she went, "What's that?" And then she went, "Right, put it full blast, put it all the way through." And then she stood over the engineer and made him delete the original vocal, so no one would ever ever hear it wow. in any other way than with all the warbles on it. Oh wow! And that is that's kind of effectively what we were going to do. We were just going to give the label the way we wanted it to sound. Okay. Because I bet you, Cher knew that if she didn't do that, she probably had enough dealings with record labels to know that if she didn't do that, the first thing some clerk at at the record label would do was go, hmm, can we have the original vocal line so that we can do another mix without the effect on it? Yep. Um, yep. The song became massively famous because of the effect. Exactly. He had the vision to see that. It's the artist that should be allowed the vision, and it's the label that should support the vision. That is how music used to be in the 60s. Well, that's why they signed you guys. Well, that's it. It's like you weren't signing the Spice Girls. Exactly. You know, They signed you guys for your creativity, for the sound and, and the potential that you guys had 
to make unique music. So yeah. why neuter it? I mean, what we should have done at the time, looking back on it, was we should have just said, if you don't go with it, we're not going to record the album. Yeah, but, you know, I mean... You know, a George Michael, Sony music situation. Yeah. yeah. So you were an early adopter of the internet for music. Was that in the days of 6x7, or did that happen or after the, the band had broken up? Well, what, what happened really was... Um, the band didn't break up. The band got dropped by oh. Beggar's Banquet after the third album. And then I formed a record label, my own record label, and I got um, distribution and stuff. And then I started to to do everything myself, really. And then, then the bass player left and um, he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. It's, there's no point. So he went and left. And then um, the three of us, the keyboard player, the drummer and me, um, we carried on. And we carried on for, we, we did an album called 04, which got great reviews and sold really well. And we got all the money for that ourselves. And we managed to keep going for another, just from the money from that, I think we sold about, about 20,000 copies. Wow. Start off with. And um, we pressed up 20,000 and then we did, and we sold them all. It's completely sold out now. And then we did, uh, and we licensed it as well to America and to Spain. So it sold probably, I don't know, 30, 40,000, which was, you know, to do that yourself from your own office. Yeah. But we were, we were, we were still kind of, riding off the coattails of, of the beggars banquet banquet years. And, um, you know, we, John Peel was still giving us sessions. He really liked the record and. He actually died, unfortunately. He he gave us the session. He heard the record. We got the record to him. He loved it and gave us our fifth session. And between the time of him giving us the session and us, the date of us going down, he died. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, Man, you're not kidding when you say that timing was just not your forte. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at the time, because my friend came around to see me and... and um, and I said, fucking hell, Keith, we're on our own now, you know. I said, thank God Peely's still kicking around because the only way we get played on Radio 1 now is is um, because of Peel. And and he died two days later. And oh. I, I was, oh, God, oh. I can't believe it. Anyway, oh. yeah, so then, then what happened was because we'd recorded this album on our own. So the thing about me was that when I got my publishing money, I spent it all on recording equipment. I bought a, a mixing desk and a tape machine and um, compressors and microphones. And cause I always thought to myself, I don't want this to end. And if we get dropped, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to carry on and I'm just going to learn to use all this stuff. So yeah. I taught myself how to use it all. Oh, wow. And, um, and then um, we recorded, um, I, I think we recorded like um, about 30 songs for the, for the album. And now when we were on Beggar's Banker, we would never have been able to do that. Right. And, um, you know, it was a case of like, the album was whatever was ready and we were t constantly touring. So everything was kind of rushed pretty much. And, um, I think, uh, this time around, you know, we were able to record an abundance of tracks and we put the, we, we put the album together. I think it had 11 songs on it and we were happy with it, put it out, got great reviews and everything. And, um, and then we had all these tracks left over and we had a, our studio, we called it the Peveril Hotel. So what we did was we, we then did um, an album called Left Luggage at the Peveril Hotel, which was made up of all the other songs that didn't make it onto the album. Oh, okay. for 10 pounds and I basically at that time was starting to build websites and it was all just kind of beginning and I I had this mailing list and I emailed everybody on this mailing list and said you know we've just done this other album which is basically all the leftovers which the record label, if there had been any, they would have used them as B-sides. Right, and, yeah. you know, it would have been, there wouldn't have been that many to make an album with. And, um, you know, but and I explained it to everybody. And I said, so, you know, if you want, you can have this. It's, it's only in a little wallet with a black and white cover, but it sounds really good. Yeah. And I sold, that day I sold 600. That's 6,000 pounds. Wow. And just in the first day, oh my! And then we were we we were like, oh, I was opening my PayPal account, and it was just like overflowing with 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 money, and we were it was like we were some sort of like you know hip hop band or something yeah. that had some hit. And uh, <laughs> so I phoned the boys up and I said, look, we've just it keeps going up. We're at, we're at eight and a half thousand pounds now, uh, and then we decided to do the album as a jewel case CD and we sold another 2000 of them oh, wow. straight away. And we were like, hang on a minute, this is really good. You know, we can, and we had, we had my recording equipment and we had, we'd rented a room in town for, you know, about 200 pounds a month or something. Oh, wow this old disused house where we put all our stuff in and there was another band upstairs. There was a band around the corner. And um, we then went and got an accountant and we became a limited company and 
became directors and paid ourselves a minimum wage. Oh, nice. And we were able to claim tax relief and all the rest of it. And we were actually getting then, um, because we fell under a, this certain enormous number that we could, you know, of millions. So yeah. we could then, our accountant was like, look, you can now claim this and this, and you can actually, if you declare that you're only paying yourselves this amount, then the government will top it up and you, and the rest of it can just be sitting there. So we just did that. And we, we lived really happily sort of, you know, for, for years, I'm just, I'm, I'm made another record and, and then I started to develop the whole internet thing, you know, yeah. as it grew, I kind of grew with it. And what we, what we were finding was that the very thing that was killing the music industry was actually helping us because we were now able to, to channel our music. So, Hey, oh, okay. So we sell 20,000 records and make five pound profit on each one. Well, actually, between three people who don't have great overheads, that is actually quite a decent wage yeah. for us all to, to be living off. You know, it's actually all right. And um, you know, we couldn't we couldn't buy a house with a swimming pool, right. but we could we could live, you know, just like you do or anybody else who's yeah. got a job. You know, and we were doing our own thing. We were beholden to no one. Yeah. We could decide what the artwork was. We could. There was no arguments about, you know, the name of the record, and it was all really good fun, and it was all really easy. And we were also putting records out in the shops. And while we were doing all this in this punk rock way, the music industry was literally being napstered to death. Yeah, it was absolutely collapsing. It was a um... It was a wild time. But then what happened was the middlemen started to get control of the internet. You know, hang on a minute. We need a piece of this. Yep. So as we rose in an independent way, we were then shut out. And then the independent music industry, that collapsed as well. The 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 um the whole sort of um there was a shop called Sister Ray um a distribution company which with independent shops in it, and it collapsed and um it took about 120 independent record shops with it in one day wow you know and then what happened was we started to get what's called returns so what happens is when you sell a record so you make a you make a vinyl record or a CD. And you, and you give it to a distribution company and they supply all the people that they work with, but it's all done on a basis of sale or return. So what happens is they buy 10 records off you, you get 150 quid or whatever, mm -hmm. and you get that money and everything's hunky-dory, and then the record shop doesn't sell them because it closes down or whatever and it sends them all back and then you're your statement from the distribution company is then minus. Uh... So before we knew it, I remember phoning up um, the guy from the distribution company and saying to him, can you stop this from happening? <laughs> <laughs> We've just had 700 returns from Poland. Oh, my God. 
just had 60 returns from this shopping, you know, we've just had 150 returns, we've just had 400 returns. We went to minus £8,000 in the distribution company. Oh, my God. And then, of course, the boys caught wind of this in the band, and it was my record label and that, and they legged it. Oh. So I had to pay all the money back. And what happened was for years, for about, it took me about four years to pay it back because I had to pay it back through record sales. So, for example, I did a solo album, which did really well, called um, A Streetcar Named Disaster. Yes. I see the lights as they throw their beams as they shimmer through the dark. Up in the air on a wave of love, you can count the years on the stars. My mind was free. I got no money for it because all the money went to pay off the £8,000. Oh, wow. So, so for four years, I was kind of releasing stuff on the internet and releasing stuff through the shops, but everything that I was releasing through the shops was paying back the debt from 6 by 7 and then everything I was selling on the internet was kind of feeding the children or keeping the keeping the household going and my wife was working as a teacher so she was bringing in the majority of the money and it was a really it was a really i had to sell the studio and oh, you know no. yeah yeah and it all it all became like oh my god and, and but i by i just managed to keep it going somehow i don't know how i just don't know how but then the guy from the distribution company phoned me up and he said it's done You've paid it all back. It's wow. done. Uh, you everything now. You're going to start getting money from us again. Oh wow! And and then all of a sudden, the unimaginable happened, which I never thought would happen. Which was there was a resurgence in vinyl. So yeah, the distribution. <laughs> the guy with the who I just paid the eight thousand pounds back to. He phoned me up and he said. Let's do this record on vinyl. I said, "What are you, are you crazy?" And he went, <laughs> "He went, watch." <laughs> so the thing is with vinyl is the CD. Initially, when we released O four, you know, you could get, you could get like a healthy ish return off this piece of plastic crap. Yeah, and and then it died a death because of downloads yeah and illegal downloads of course and then what happened was the music industry at some point decided that they should stop fighting the internet and and try and re-educate people and embrace it so that they could actually make it easier and cheaper for you to buy a song than to actually steal it right why you know where it's it's complicated it's all coming in from different places it's all crappy so the whole downloading thing started to take off and that and then for some reason and i don't know why but the whole vinyl thing started happening again and 
the thing about vinyl is, uh, it, you know, he said to me, I said, well, how much do you sell them for? Because the last vinyl I bought was, was six quid. And he went, oh, no, they're 20 quid now, and you'll get £10.85 right. for each one we sell. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute. If I can sell 500 that's really good money. And yeah. he went, oh, yeah, let's do it. And it was like, oh, fucking hell. So I started selling vinyl. So... With the downloads and then the vinyl, and then it all started to sort of even itself out again, and I was able to start to buy my studio back and get all the bits back and start oh, to build it up again. You know, that's it's, awesome. But this is it. With it, it's like this in anything. It, it's you know, I always think as one door closes, another one opens. Yeah, and you've got to stay positive and just keep dreaming that's the hard part the stand positive that's that's difficult sometimes but the trouble with me is i'm not very adept at doing a nine to five job and i tend to get sacked within about two weeks (laughs) (laughs) i'm kind of forced into this situation because you know when someone goes and tells me to do something that doesn't need doing. I say, but that doesn't need doing. And they say, well, go and do it anyway, because you're not being paid to stand around here. And at that point I go, shove it up your ass. (laughs) That's probably where you're going wrong. Yeah. Well, that's probably where I'm going right. (laughs) That's true. Maybe I should be doing that more often. Well, what I always thought was that I remember one time I was working as a car cleaner and, um, I was um, fed up and I just thought, I'm not doing this anymore. There's got to be better things to do with your life. And I remember saying to the guy, I'm going to leave to this guy that I was cleaning this car with. I said, I'm going to leave. I'm not doing this anymore. And he said, oh, what? have you got another job? And I said, no. He said, well, when are you going to leave? And I went, we're in about five minutes. <laughs> said, well, where are you going to go to? What are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, Life doesn't work like that, Chris. What you do is you decide to leave this job, you find yourself another job, you leave this job, and then you go to the other job. And I said, yeah, but what happens if I don't want the other job? (laughs) It looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) I said, aren't they all just the same in the end? And he was like, well, I suppose so. And I said, well... Good point. I think the thing to do is I'll go and see Lenny. The boss was called Lenny. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm, I'll go and see Lenny now. Tell him to pay me up till today and leave. And then what I'll do is I'll go down the pub and have a drink and think about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And then I'll probably try and just get on with that. <laughs> and, then, and that's what I did. <laughs> and I've done it in a, virtually every uh, job I every job I ever had I've done that that's amazing oh I love that so much employable you know I've got to find a way I've got to like everyone else I've got to find a way I've got to make a living I've got to find a way and and I think that you know a poverty is a good catalyst you know I agree with that like countries go to war they often invent many things because their backs are up against the wall that's that's why we're always constantly at war yeah, so we, we invent all these marvellous things to kill each other with. Yeah. Brilliant bits of technology. Why use a drone for anything else? Exactly. 
Well, and um, spying your neighbors you know, in their pool. Using them to transport things around them. Yeah. One of those drones that kills people. I think even President Obama killed something like 1,800 people in personal drone attacks. Oh, yeah. During yeah. his administration. Oh, and yeah. he was one of the good guys. <laughs> and it's like, you think to yourself, my God, hang on a minute. What happens if you actually use that in a positive way? We all did. Yeah. In a much better place. And it, I think what this pandemic has taught us is that I was reading a book that said 68% of all jobs are fucking not needed. There is so much middle management around at the moment. Oh, yeah. it's There's a line manager for everything, and all you really need is the guy at the bottom. Yep. And, and the thing me. is, what, yeah, yeah, it's everyone. And what this pandemic, it's me too, yeah. what this pandemic has shown us is that the only people that really matter are the ones stacking the shelves, the ones selling you the bread and the milk, the ones driving it to the shop, the guys taking away the rubbish, and the people who fix your house. And pretty much everything outside of that can stay at home, and we can actually survive. Yeah. A very, very tiny minority of the population working. So why the fuck is everybody fucking driving around in these cars, commuting and going to jobs that they don't even need to do to make billionaires? Well, yeah. I I was one of those ones that throughout this whole thing had to drive to work every day. They, they say the only jobs that matter are the ones where you have to physically touch something and move it. That's me. That's the only job that matters. Yep. When we were talking about how I write songs, isn't it weird that I always start by using something that I can physically touch and yeah. move? And that's not a mouse, by the way. Right. <laughs> right. It's an actual physical piece of equipment. Yeah. All right. So how did you start working with Julian Cope? Um, I met Julian through a guy called Tony Foster, who was the guitar player for Julian. Okay. Tony played in Six by Seven for a bit, and he played. He plays in Spiritualized now. And I met Julian, and then I became friends with Julian, and then I worked with him for about twelve years, I think. Wow. I played. I recorded his music. Okay, because I was trying to sort all that out, and some of it, 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 some of it's not easy to figure out when I'm trying to actually you know, do my day job and try to research for this podcast. Yeah. All right. So, what era of, is this? What 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 time frame is is this going on with Six by Seven, or is this after? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I think that was probably during the time when I was paying money back. Okay. Like working for him was was like um, a, a, a kind of little bit of a lucrative sideline. Wasn't that lucrative, but it was. <laughs> it was like uh, I didn't get any royalties or anything. I just sort of uh, I recorded his albums. He used to come into my house and use my equipment, or I used to put my equipment into the car, drive it to his house, and record him there. Okay. 
I really don't know how many albums I did with him. I've got no idea because he never told me what was what we were doing most of the time. And then he wouldn't credit you and he wouldn't <laughs> tell you. And you, this record would come out and I'd, I'd be like, oh, I did that. And, uh, you know. But it wouldn't uh, be anywhere for you to, on the record, wouldn't, wouldn't credit you at all? No. Oh, duck. Or he'd put you a different name, or he he gave he gave people different names, or or he did he did all sorts of weird stuff, probably just so that he didn't have to give anybody any royalties. Is that why you came up? Uh, you have a credit on uh, Discogs as Ron Boots. Yeah, that's that's me. Yeah, I think I'm Ron Boots. I think, yeah, I think that's what, that's what it says on on uh, Discogs. I'm looking up, and it's, it has aliases D Schneider. And Ron Boots. Is that me? That's yeah. That's what it says on, on your disc on discogs.com, which I love, by the way. Yeah, he came down. He came to my studio, and because I'm I speak German, he he said to me, "Oh, what? How do you say this in German?" And it was something like "kill the priests," and I went, "Oh, Turte die Priester." And he went, "Oh, okay." And he wrote that down. And he said, "How do you say this?" And he wrote that down. Then he said, what does that synth there do? Switch it on. And I switched it on. He said, can you make it sort of just play a, a bass line? And I went, yeah. So I sat and did that. And he went, oh, that's good, yeah. Oh, record it. Right, okay. And then he said, he got the microphone, and he, and he said, get some microphones up. We got a microphone up, and then he, we put headphones on. Then he went, shout this into the microphone and I went oh Turkey Priester and then he went rah, rah. and then we was doing that we were just having a laugh you know yeah. and then then he was going fuck with that and then he'd play something else and then and then it, we did that for about 25 minutes and then and then he said to me oh can you um, can you just bounce that down for me and just put it onto this CD yeah yeah sure and then he said oh here's a if I write this out, can you say it in German for me? And I went, yeah. So he he wrote this prose out about a a Messerschmitt bomber or something, and then he and he said, read that in German. So I read it in German. He went, oh, nice one. But can you on a disc for me? Yeah, sure. And then he said, oh, I've got this drone here. You know that synth you got there? Can you pr put another drone over? Yeah, sure. You know, and then it it would just be like that, and oh then and all of a sudden I'd look at his website, and there was this um, band called Is it Kabbalist, the Kabbalist, the Kabbalist. yeah, Kabbalist. and the, with an album cover and all the rest of it, and it was called, and it had a name in German which it spelled wrong, and then Is it? And, I, and I didn't I didn't think anything of it, and then I found out it was all this stuff that I'd done. Oh my god! And of course, and 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 then he phoned me up and he said, "Oh, by the way, you're in Kabbalist now." And I was like, "What is that?" And he, said, "Oh, it's this. It's a band with two people in it: Hugo de Clay and Ron Boots." And I said, "Well, who am I?" And he said, "You're Ron Boots." And he said, "But don't you mustn't ever tell anyone about this. You must never ever tell anyone because I've played this to." my friends in America who are in this band called Sun and they think it's really good. And if they find out that the guy from Six by Seven is in it, they probably won't like it. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, that's how he used to talk to me. Oh. And uh, and I, of course, used to sort of just go, oh, all right. And really what I should have done was I should have said to him, withdraw that record immediately or pay me 50% royalties. Yeah, exactly. We well, actually um, two credits on the as Ron Boots and D Schneider. Oh, I'm D Schneider as well, am I? Yeah, well that's what that's what the the website uh Discogs has. Well, after I stopped working with him, I just put it out on the internet that, you know, I was Ron Boots and I yeah. was on this record and which you wouldn't have liked, but it's like, well, you know, what are you hiding me away for? You know, you want me to do this, but then you want, because six by seven doesn't really fit into your, you know, it's not out there enough. It's, uh, he's a strange one. He is. Yeah. I've always kind of gotten that vibe just through his music, but I, I, I never met anybody who had worked with him. So I, I didn't know it was that bizarre. That was, sounds like a very, very bizarre relationship i guess I don't, i'm not exactly sure how to qualify it well, it was a kind of it was one of those relationships where you look up to someone like I, that's what i did i looked up to him and i i admired him for you know and he'd written some of these brilliant songs and you know and i couldn't believe that i was working with him and that and and he, he looked down on me and he just used me and rinsed me but that's what you know, he told me he was doing that. He was like, I'm an artist and I'll only have people in my life who are useful to me. Wow. And that's what he would say to my face. I guess. Your yeah, band got it all wrong and, and, and all of this sort of stuff. And I said, you don't like 6x7. He said, it's not that I don't like it. It's that I just don't love it. Hmm. And, you know, and it, he's very much like... Um, in his own world, in his own territory, and he's very ruthless. Sound I mean, like you that. don't get to be who he, you know, you don't get to be a, a successful singer, like artist, unless you are ruthless, and he's got plenty of that in him. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people that I've met on my travels doing this, yeah. Are narcissistic, they're ruthless, egocentric. They display all the human qualities that you need to thrive. We're talking about nasty, nasty pieces of work well, who will their own mother's throat for, you know, what, what it is they want. People that don't have any em- empathy, remorse, you know nothing and they they end up running the world exactly i had had this exact conversation with somebody else a couple of months ago you know to get to that level you've you've got to be pretty ruthless and willing to do just about anything yeah Um, the more ruthless you are the higher you'll go yep on to better things yeah the death of six by seven that was that the world disappeared me it's such a cool album i think my my favorite track is bohemian typewriter it just it sounds it sounds like it could be a almost like a, a swan's track Thank you. 
Yeah. I love that song. What spurred on the death of Six by Seven? Oh, well, that that was actually um, the, it's called the death of Six by Seven because it's it's Six by Seven without drums. So, for example, um, it came about while I was recording with Julian, and all my gear was at his house, and um, I was t- traveling to and from his house to work with him, and I left my gear there. So I only had a little eight track to record on, and um, I recorded a loop onto track one and then wrote the song over it onto tracks two and three with a voice and a guitar acoustic. Okay. And then I added a string machine and a bass guitar, an electric guitar, and a mini Moog. And then that was basically what I did. And I started to just uh, record the songs in that strict fashion. And then the, the acoustic guitar gave the music the percussion, if you like, and the loop gave it a kind of drive. So it didn't need drums. And I wrote like that for probably about two or three years nonstop. And I, and I used to put them out as the death of six by seven. And then I took the best songs and um, we turned it into um, an album called Love and Peace and Sympathy, which we did with the drummer from Placebo. So he yeah, he, he joined us for that, and we went into the studio and recorded Love and Peace and Sympathy, which was kind of the death of Six by Seven with drums. Right. And then I left it behind. I discovered new ways of making music, and I didn't really go back to the death of Six by Seven. And my looper pedal broke. Uh, I started buzzing, so I just <laughs> didn't bother with it. And then about... A month ago, I was looking on eBay. I was looking for, I noticed that you could get all these different kind of guitar pedals now that simulate all sorts of stuff. And I wondered if they were any good. And I found a cheap one secondhand and I bought it. And it had a looper on it. So I started looping up on it. And then I I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to... Um, writing songs again with the loop pedal so i mean i just did that in about a week that album just sitting there i just put the loops in it's very easy to do an album when you've got a a framework to hang it on so if you if you have a studio full of instruments the key thing is don't use them all (laughs) i think what you're always trying to do is try and create harmony and balance between the ones that you do use and you don't ever need more than five so what you do is you put them together and for me it's always great fun because i do six by seven ex and i do different sort of variations and then they always have to conform to um a certain way of working and that way is the way that all the instruments fit together and i because I got this pedal, this new, and with this looper on it, and I started making loops again, I just thought, oh, this is obviously going to be a Death of Six by Seven record. So I just uh, put it out there as that, really, as a bit of fun. You've got so many different sounds between Six by Seven, Death of Six by Seven, 
uh, 12, Fuck Me USA, Walls of and Donna. And within 6x7, you've got EX, and you've got the Dream On Krautrock Pandemic series. That's, yeah, that's right, that's right. And 11 albums of um, just sort of putting stuff out live and quick for people to just donate and help me through the pandemic, you know. Well, I think... I dream on. I think you might be the most prolific person I've had on the podcast. It's unbelievable the, the amount of work that's out there. Well, I, yeah, but the thing is, people... I, I always get emails from people saying, my God, you're so prolific. And, and I always write back to them and I say, well, I'm probably only doing what you do if you have a job. And... Um, what if if in this country, if you've got a job, you probably get up around about seven thirty. You're out of the house by about quarter past eight. You know, you commute. You start at quarter to nine or nine o'clock, and then you you stay there all day. You probably finish around five, half five. You commute back, get back home six thirty or something. So. Now, think about that in terms of music. So what happens is you get up in the morning, you go into the studio, and you start to play, and then you start to write, and then you start to produce, and then you start to finish, and then you master, and you upload. And the process doesn't take that long. And if you keep building frameworks, so that drum machine with that synth and that guitar is for that project and you come up with all these different ideas to m move around a it keeps you interested and you can flip between them when you get bored of one you can flip to the other so you can have different things going all the time you're channeling kind of stuff through so you know if you're feeling your body goes in waves and sometimes you'll wake up and you'll feel morose. Sometimes you'll feel happy, or sometimes you'll feel like you want to go for a run. Sometimes you feel like you won't. So when you're doing music, all that's channeled through into, you know, I'm going to do a slow song okay. because I'm not feeling, I didn't sleep very well. You know, I'm not going to write a full-on punk song because my ears are hurting. So you channel all that through and you keep doing things through different frameworks, and then you spend the amount of time on it that an average person would spend at work. And that is how much music you will come up with. <laughs> I didn't think about it like that. You know, that is what will happen. It's a natural byproduct of what, of just working. Now, the thing is, you've always been conditioned to think in terms of how music is released by the industry. Yeah. Now, the music industry never wanted you to release records in quick succession. They were always against that because they had so many other artists to deal with between you as well. So your turn came up when they were commercially ready to throw it at you, yeah? Yeah. And certain artists when like Prince, just like when I'm just going to put out my shit myself, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you look at what Prince did, 
I mean, didn't he kind of re-record his whole back catalogue while he was actually re-recording <laughs> new material? I think so. Well, he used to get up in the morning, go into the studio, Paisley Park, and just record all day, and then he'd go to bed. Yeah. And, you know, um, that's what he did, and he was a multi-instrumentalist. He did it all himself. Yeah. And he just knocked it out. Now, the record companies, for for their own benefit don't want you to do that so we've got this preconceived idea of how music is released we expect our artists to put out an album at the most once every 15 months you know and the time span gets longer and longer as the record labels work lesser and lesser with more bands and and focus all their eggs in the one basket. Yeah. And then what you do is you end up through globalization, you end up with this multi-million selling act which which feeds everybody for 30 years, you know. Yeah. Like Adele or something like that. Yeah. And I'm considered to be prolific and extraordinary when in actual fact I'm just ordinary and unprolific and the way that i'm perceived is purely because of the way the industry that i'm not a part of wants me to be seen you know okay i that's a completely different way of looking at it i never thought of it like that that's the way it actually is (laughs) well have you been doing your photography this whole time uh, no, I, I, the photography thing is, like I said before, I only really um, wanted to, I wanted to go to university to, to meet people that I could start a band with. Yeah. And I realized pretty odd, by the time I was about 24, 25, I realized that, you know, most bands, they, they're either school, when do you have time to start a band? Well, when you're at school with you, you know, so yeah, I mean, and then um, there's college bands, you know, mm-hmm. um, like Pink Floyd or whatever. There's the Genesis, which is a school band. Beatles, I guess they were a school band. Stones, you know, these bands that form kind of like around that time when when you actually can live off very little money. You can bum around. You can sofa surf, and you know, you've got time. Uh, you can get high. You can. You've got the balls to steal a Les Paul because yeah. you can't buy one. So <laughs> uh, you know. And I realised that if I if I wanted to fulfil my dream, I now had missed the opportunity with the school band and missed the opportunity with the sort of um, the post school sort of bumming around band. And what I needed to do now was my only chance really was to get into university and do an arts course where I could meet people that I could form a band with. So I thought photography and I, I pursued it to the extent that I got myself into university with it <laughs> and it was purely to form a band. Wow. Well, so I, that's it really. And I think that, you know, I, I, um, I do it now and again. I mean, I did the football stadiums book, but um, well, I, I looked at your website and I I quite like your portraits. 
Yeah, did you see the football stadiums? Yes, I did. That, that's real. That was it. Ninety-two of them, I think. Yeah, ninety-two football stadiums. Yeah, that's amazing. So I just did that because that was like I, that was something that I I wanted to do when I was at college, and I could never do it. And then I I got a motorbike and and I did it. And we and we used to sort of travel around with the family and do it. And um, you know, it was a great way to sort of. It was just a fun hobby, really, a thing to do. Okay. And yeah, and the portraits, I mean, that was mostly stuff that I did at college, you know. Because again, it was like all I did was what you're doing, which is photograph bands. That's what I did. Yeah. And why did I photograph bands? Because I wanted to meet the singers and I wanted to ask them how they did it. I was getting information. You know, I, I photographed Buffalo Tom. I sat down with the singer and I asked him about how he wrote this and how he did that and when they first started. And they always used to look at me in a quite a strange way, you know. So you were basically podcasting without recording it and releasing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I was doing was I was gleaning information, trying to trying to suck it all in, really, to try and to... All I was interested in was was music and becoming... Neil Young. Yeah. You know. What's going on with, with six by seven is six by seven able to, to play out. I mean, were you guys, was the band uh, a, a live act before the pandemic? And, and is that something you can pick up afterwards? Yeah, we played Glastonbury just before the pandemic. Awesome. Uh, you know, with the original drummer and, um, but, um, I've decided not to do that because I'm going to be playing, but um, I've um, I've developed a new a new way of of playing music, and it's um, my son has been he's 23 years old, and he um, he's been playing the drums since he was eight years old, and oh, wow. he's a really really good drummer, uh, very capable, plays a lot like. He's he's very very heavy, big sounding drummer, but also very adept and exceptional. Actually, proper musician and um, grew up around studios and drummers, and yeah. he always had people giving him advice and telling him how it's done. And well, I mean, the drummer for but, Six by Seven is is amazing. So you know, if, yeah, Chris. Yeah. So he if he grew up listening to that with that around him, I can. Definitely, well, I imagine. Charlie walked into the recording studio when he was three years old. The first thing he went towards was the drum kit because it's wow. the most, wow. you know, an amplifier or it just looks like, a, um, you know, a cabinet yeah. in the house. The drums are like, oh, you can hit stuff. Yeah. And, of course, then the drummer would sit and show him and uh, and that went on and then he picked it up and then he, I bought him a drum kit and he, he went in and out and, you know, and then the drummer from Placebo joined us just as Charlie was 12, 13, 14 or something. And he, and he, and around, and he was like, you know, you got to do it. I mean, he really was a good drummer and he was like, this is what you have to do. And, and Charlie picked it all up and did it. And, uh, um, anyway, so we do, we do this thing where, um, I, I crowd the, when we did our third album, which we actually recorded live at Rockfield studios. And, um, I had this idea and I phoned Rockfield Studios up and I said to them, if I come down there, 
It's a residential studio. It was actually the first residential studio in the world. Oh, really? Yeah, it's where Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded. Oh, wow, okay. Where, you know, Wonderwall was recorded there. And, so, uh, by residential studio, I mean, that that's, uh, you, you mean a, a studio where the artists just kind of stay there? Yeah. Okay. So, they've got two studios. There's one called, it's a big, it's an old pig farm. It's a really big farm out in the country. Okay. And it's got two studios. One's called the Coach House. One's called the Quadrangle. And the the Coach House, the living area for the Coach House is like this big house in the field. And when you walk in, there's a huge living room. If you, if you watch the Oasis film Supersonic, you'll see the, you'll see it in there. The oh. guy's letting off fire extinguisher in there. So you got this big living room. I mean, it's big, and then you've got this big dining area just up from it with a big table, and then you've got one, two, three, four, five, six rooms. The sixth room is a double room. The top two, you can put three people in each, and the other two are two people in each, and they're all en suite. Okay. So when everyone comes out of their rooms, they're all in the big room it's brilliant wow so i phoned them up and i said can i come down do you remember me and they were like yeah of course we you know it's a run it found a guy called kingsley has been running it since the 60s it, it's brilliant it's a family run thing and um i said can i can i come down and record an album with my band but can i bring like 18 people with me and they went yeah of course can. we've got We've got room for 18 people. Wow. You bring 18 people. So what I did was um, I, I launched a Kickstarter uh, crowdfunding thing. Okay. And I said to my missus, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell each room for 600 quid. So you can come with me to the studio and you can watch me make the album. You can join in. We'll put Abby clapping on it. And yeah. And just hang out for two two days. And you get a waitress-served meal and breakfast and lunch and everything, you know. That's and awesome. it's all sort of like, and uh, so, uh, and I said, what do you think, 600 quid? Because I just wanted to pay. I, I was kind of like not looking to make a profit. I just wanted to, to sort of, Ask the fans if they would pay for me to go to this top studio to make an album on a Neve desk and everything. Right. And um, their reward for paying for it for me would be to come along and watch me do it and hang out in this famous studio. That sounds awesome. Yeah, so I worked it all out and I worked out how much money I needed and then I launched the Kickstarter and I sold all all the rooms within half an hour. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And then, and then what happened was everybody came along and I went down and we met everybody and, and we had the most brilliant time. <laughs> and they were all like, we can't believe we're here. This is amazing. This is where Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded. And you can go on to... There's been a film made about the studios now, and they're all emailing me going, have you seen it? They're standing exactly where we was. <laughs> it's brilliant. You know, Silver Machine was recorded there by Hawkwind and uh, oh, Black Sabbath. Wow. Uh, you know, re really 
Rush, Farewell to the Kings. Oh, wow. We're talking about, you know, classic stuff. Anyway, so uh, Stone Roses. But, but, but the thing is, what happened was then I didn't have to do any more Kickstarters because the guys just said to me, look, if you want to do this again, like next week, we'll come, <laughs> we'll do it again. And, wow. and I was like, yeah, okay. So eventually it came to a point where I went down and it was just me and Charlie, and I and I said to everybody in the band, I said, "Look, I said to everybody in the in in the um, who, who the we call them the Rockfield Faithful, everybody." I said, "Look, I'm I'm gonna I'm not doing a six by seven sort of per se album at the moment. The first album we did was one called Abstraction Twelve. Okay, yeah, we recorded completely fucking live with two drummers and me on guitar." guitar with me with a wham bar and i tried to play like neil young oh man that was my moment you know to i was playing through two 70s a 60s and a 70s marshall with this gretch and it was it sounded like neil young and it was going into a neve desk with two drummers and a bass player and it was just i mean if you listen to that album if you can get through it it's fucking colossal <laughs> We came out with so much stuff after one weekend that we made a double album. But um, wow, yeah. So you know that was all. But but then I, I went back there to do an album called Dessus England, and I said to them, "Look, I want to do something different this time. I don't want to do that again." And they were like, "Whatever you want to do." And I thought, okay. So I went down there with Charlie, and we did an album called Dessus England. I think I think we've done it three or four times now and I and we went down the last time and um we did this album where I got this guy to build a um a box for me and it's got four lights on it okay and then there's a lead that comes out of it and there's another box like you know a pedal box with four buttons on it with four lights on it that corresponds to the other one okay so the first light is red the second one's amber the third one's green and the other one's the last one's pink so i go in to build this box and then what we did was i said to charlie look when you see the the red light you don't play when you see the amber light, you only play cymbals. When you see the green light, you bring in a beat. 
And when you see the pink light, you go fucking crazy. <laughs> just mad. Yeah. Just yeah. like full on. And Charlie was like, yeah, okay. So what I did was I, I got my mini Moog and I, I sequenced it with this drum machine. And then we sent the, the drum machine and the mini Moog to the headphones for Charlie. And then, and then I had this, this machine which is an eight oscillator synth, right? And it's like fucking, it was made by a Russian professor and he's called Vlad Kramer. It's called the Soma Lyra 8, if you want to look it up. And it's, it, it's it, I had to wait six months on a waiting list to get it. And you, it, it makes the sound of a, of a 747 taking off. Oh basically. my God. <laughs> you, uh, you've never heard anything like it. Oh. I'll send you a link and you can have a listen. I would love that. Anyway, if you if you listen, and then I had a piano, um, which went through effects. And basically, so what I did was I'd play the piano through the effect and I'd play a little drone and all that with the, the light telling Charlie not to play. Okay. And then I'd get the sequence going and get the bass line going. And then I'd start to play a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of drone and building it up. And then I'd push the button and then Charlie starts bringing the cymbals in. And then we get it going. And then I think, right, let's kick the boot. Let's boot the, the groove. Let's get the groove in there. Yeah. And Charlie has been listening to it all and he's got the drum machine going that. So he then kicks in with this lovely shuffly groove you know and we're off and then we just and then i play the guitar and do a little bit of singing and we build it up and then and then we go fucking crazy and then all of a sudden we you know i'm we're going mad and it's all going mad and and then i go i think to myself i want it to stop now so i push the button and charlie sees it and eight bars later he stops and i stop with him but it's it's almost like we've been rehearsing it for months wow so if you want to hear the results of that, you go and listen to the very first Dream On album on the website. Okay. That is the, me and Charlie at Rockfield doing that. Check that out now that you know how we did it. Yes. So what I did was I got asked to do a gig in the first place that 6x7 had ever done their first gig in. Oh. And um, they offered me some money to go and play. And I said, look, I'll go, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it. It's not, I'm not going to play any 6x7 songs. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to do this, something that you've probably never seen before. And me and Charlie then went and did exactly what I just described to you live in front of an audience. Wow. And it was fucking brilliant. And wow. the thing about it was, was no one can see the lights and no one knows what's going on. So they think it's all, you know, when he suddenly stops and I stop with him at the crescendo, 
looks like we're as fucking worked out as Deep Purple were. Yeah. Child in times, you know, and and everyone's like, "Wow, man, they they must have rehearsed this for fucking ages." Yeah. <laughs> so what I want to do now is I want to develop that idea live on stage, and then probably what I'm going to do is introduce a guitar player. I'm going to um, and put another box and direct him in a different way. Oh wow! So this music, and it going back to that thing that Jack White said, which is. The first thing you do is always the most soulful thing, and it's the best thing. Yeah. And the trouble is, you probably don't do it quite right. So, and you haven't recorded it. So, I thought to myself, well, because this is what Can did, the German band from the seventies. Mm-hmm. Can and Can always recorded onto stereo, not multi-track, and they always just tried to capture the very first moment the very essence because they felt that that was where where the magic happened but that's also where the mistakes happen yeah yeah so what you do is then you go well let's do it again but this time without the mistakes well who's to say what's a mistake so yeah i really like this idea of creating music on the fly you know you don't want it to be completely out of control because it'll just bore the shit out of everyone. Yeah, chaos is just... A mess. Yeah. So with the lights, with controlling the the flow of the music up and down, you know, okay, we've had enough madness now. <laughs> Let's drop it down. Let's start again. Let's build up a new groove. Let's go into this now. Let's not go mad on this bit. Let's just drop back again and go quiet. Whatever I feel like doing, I just do. And the drummer goes with it in a completely seamless way, which almost makes it look like it's being thought of, but it's all being conceived at the time. And I think for me, that is the, where I am in life at the moment. That is what I want to do. And it's quite left field and it's, and it's interesting, but it's, uh, it's what I want. Go and have a listen to that album, Dream On. The very, the very first Dream On album, and then I... Th- Do you know what? I've got a feeling... It, yeah, it's the second one as well. So there's Dream On 1 with a white cover, I think, and then there's Dream On 2, okay. which has got a red cover, and it's a double album because... The thing is that when me and Charlie did this in the studio, we were recording these like eight to 12 to 15 minute songs, which had real structure to them. Right. And we were recording them in eight to 12 to 17 minutes. However long the song was, yeah. was how long it took to record it. Okay. So after a while, you know, so we were there for two days in the studio so we came out with three albums worth of stuff. Wow. And then what I did was I I wrote song songs with lyrics on the piano without the drums with the same instrumentation at home in the studio. Oh, wow. And then put them between the wig outs. Oh, man. But you, got, you know, so it sounds like... It's a well thought through 
a band, and in actual fact, what you're listening to is spontaneity and freshness and the first version of everything. Oh. So that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to play Glastonbury doing that. And um, we actually had a tour booked in um, last May, not last May, the May before, and then the pandemic, everything got cancelled, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just waiting now for for things to get back to normal and calm down a bit. The way that the government's running things in this country, I'm not sure when that's going to happen. I'm just hanging back to see how the, what the lay of the land is. But yeah. if it goes the other way and things work out all right, I'm, this is what I'm going to do, Mark. I'm just going to get out and do this. Um and then try and, in, try and develop it and try and incorporate vocals into it and song structures and just see how the whole thing goes. Okay. A bit like Can, really. Yeah. I wish I was, would be able to see one of these shows because it sounds incredible. Well, I'd like to come over. I mean, I was talking to Pete from the Dandies. Yeah. And we were talking about... I told him about this and Pete was like, fucking hell, this sounds amazing. And I said, yeah. well... When you, because he's coming to stay with me in February, the oh, dandies cool. are coming over, and he's gonna. When the dandies return, he's staying here, and he's gonna stay with me. Oh, nice! And I said to him, "Why don't Why don't you join us with the light thing?" And like, you know, and he was like, "Yeah, and we'll call it Walls of Data, and we'll just do that." And I said, "Yeah, we'll just call it Walls of Data, and just jam and yeah. with Charlie, and just fucking make noise." And he was so. I mean, we're gonna try it and see what happens, and then. If it if it takes off, then um, it wouldn't cost that much to to ship me and Charlie over to America and borrow a drum kit. And the mini Moog is integral because it sounds so fucking big. Yeah, <laughs> he's got one. Oh, you know? does he? Yeah. So it's like problem uh, solved. You know, he's he's got millions of guitars. So yeah. basically, I wouldn't. I'd just come over with a bag with my drum machine and my sequencer and Charlie and we'd just, you know, use the Dandy Warhols drum kit and we'll see what, you know, that's the plan. That would be amazing, man. If you can get... Then we'd come to Virginia. <laughs> yeah, you come to D... I live right, actually pretty close to D.C. So you, there's a... Well, they're, well, they're even better. There's a bunch of places to play in D.C. That, That'd be great. That way, I'll bring my camera. Let's get you, uh, let's free the rest of your evening up. Thank you so much for spending all this time with me. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. Oh, thanks for doing it. It's, been, it's always a pleasure to talk about myself at length. <laughs> <laughs> You said there's life after death You swore it a lot All you have here Is everything you got All you left there All in a mess All in a mess All in a mess All you left 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 